So this morning we're going to start a study on the book of Romans, and our text for this morning is Romans chapter 1. I'm going to handle the first half of the chapter today and then second half of the chapter next week. So this morning our text is Romans 1, 1 to 17, and uh, this is going to take us quite a while, all the way up to Christmas for sure and into the new year. We're going to take our time and work our way through it because it's the most comprehensive letter in the New Testament that unpacks the gospel and the implications of the gospel and what God's plan was undergirding the gospel and the, impl- you know, and the life we live as a result of it in, a, in a, just a tremendous way. So we're going to kind of take our time and work our way through it. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where um, you hear about a place and then you go on and life happens and then a few weeks later, months later, you hear about the same place. And then a few weeks later pass and a few more months maybe pass and somebody else talks about that same place and it's like the third time you've heard about it and you're like, I've got to go to this place. Well, that's what's going on with Paul, with why he actually even wrote the letter to the church in Rome, why he wants to go to Rome. He's heard about it and he's like, I've got to, I've got to go visit this place. He was actually in Corinth when he heard about this little church, or these, it's a handful actually, of little churches. He's in Corinth. How does news of the, a couple of handful of little churches, surely our size are def, or pro, likely most certainly smaller. I mean, really small little churches in Rome. You're in Corinth. How do you hear about them? How does the ancient news cycle work? There's no Twitter. You know, there's, uh, well, there were carrier pigeons, so that was the closest thing to Twitter, maybe. You know, a tweet took a long time to get to you, but it would get there. And you'd unroll that little... Maybe, and maybe it was 140 characters, and you'd write back. And so maybe there was ancient Twitter. But how did he hear about it? What was going on? So like I said earlier, this, this, this letter that we're about to enjoy um, for the ne- next little while, it's, it's drenched in God's grace. It is grace-drenched good news for you. And it is transforming power that changes you. He's unpacking these two things all through the letter. The letter of Romans, it it lifts our gaze from the tyranny of our self-absorption. And it leads us into the grandeur of God's kindness. This is a letter that unapologetically, it conveys God's anger and judgment towards sin in order to shine a tremendous spotlight on the scandal of God's grace who relentlessly pursued you and I to take away our sin. Both of those things are present. And Paul raises the theme of divine law, God's divine law, over 70 times in this letter. The subject of law comes up. And there's a reason for that. It's because divine law's standard of loving perfection accuses us. But Christ's life of loving perfection exonerates us. And so we are creatures created for devotion to God. We are creatures created to know God. We are creatures created to love God. And so now we come to Romans chapter 1, the first 17 verses. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son as his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all of the nations to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. 
And you also are among those nations who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my, in, in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness of how constantly I remember you in my prayers. And at all times I pray that now at last, by God's will, that I'm, I'm, it may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift and make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but I've been prevented from doing so until now, in order that the non, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I'm obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, and that's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from beginning to end, just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. This is God's word. There's a lot to unpack in this text. We're going to look at three things as I work through verse by verse, but kind of kind of categorize the thoughts of, of what's going on in this chapter. The first thing is this, that the gospel is a life-changing message. Secondly, the gospel is a historical claim. And thirdly, the gospel has transforming power. This is what Paul wants to give the church right in his opening, right from the get-go. These three things, this life-changing message, this historical claim, this life-changing power. So if you look at verse 1, Paul calls himself a slave. And that's pretty strong language. It's a pretty interesting way to open a letter. Uh, you think maybe he means something else. That's pretty harsh. So you look at it in the Greek, and he uses this word doulos, which means slave. It means a person who's enslaved. He says, I'm a total servant. And think about that language, because that grates against our modern ideas of love. If God's a God of love, and Jesus is love, and it's all about grace, and every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday for four years, I've been up here championing the goodness of God's grace, and here Paul calls himself a slave to it. Well, there's two ways to be a slave. The first way is there's external forces being placed upon your will. But that's not what's going on here. The other way you can be a slave is there's actually in internal compulsion that's actually driving your will to be a slave to something. All of us walked in here a slave of something. All of us walked in here either Jesus freaks or a freak of something else. All of us are servants of something in the sense that there's something that is driving our lives. And Paul calls himself this, this slave of good news. Have you ever been in a restaurant, somebody tastes something, it's like something comes over their body. They're so excited, they convulse, they, they take a bite, they go, oh my goodness, you've got to, and they start handing you the plate. They start sticking the fork in your face. It's like they just tasted something that's electrified them, and now they're like, oh my goodness. They're, it's like this compulsion to share it immediately. Have you ever had that? It's like being a slave to chocolate cake. I am a slave to chocolate cake. I'm, it's like this, wow, it just has, you have this reaction to it. That's the essence of what, why Paul is kind of losing, using this language, because if you love something, you will serve it. Right? 
If you love money, you'll serve your money. You'll orient your whole life around the money. You'll, you'll just be fixated on it. If, if, when you love your spouse, you're, 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 your life changes because you are fixated around what it means to be married. Right? I'm a grown man, but I can't just walk out of my house and randomly go and do something. I'll, like, I'll be out, I'll text Susan, hey, I'm going to stop by Freshco. <laughs> what? What? I'm a slave. Not in a bad way. I love it. I love my wife. I love me, but I'm a, I'm a servant. I can't just go off and just be like, oh, yeah, I, I forgot to tell you that I thought I'd go to the Jays game tonight and watch these young guys play. I'm in Toronto, P.S. Maybe I'll come back tomorrow. Maybe not. No, I'm a servant. When you love something, you serve it. When you have children, here you are, a grown adult at 730. You're like, well, we should be going. Why? Because you have children. You're serving your children. Your whole schedule orients them. You know how many young babies we have in this church? We've got like a car seat, a baby seat parking lot back there. There's like all these little kids running around Redeemer. You become slaves when you have kids. You're a slave to the child because of your love. Some of you are dog people. I don't know why, but you're dog people. <laughs> and there was division at Redeemer. No, I... <laughs> I grew up with dogs. I'm good with dogs. I don't, I'm, I'm not an anti-dog. I had lots of dogs. So here's the thing. Here's the thing with dog people. And I can say this because I grew up and we were dog people. You're a slave. You walk around with a little blue bag. Carrying its poop. If I were an alien looking down on planet Earth wanting to, like, contact intelligent life and those who are running the planet, I'd probably reach out to dogs. Because from my point of view, it looks like they're in charge. <laughs> it's like, should we speak to this tall human? Uh, no, I want to talk to the little fuzzy one. The big one's carrying its waist. That one's in charge. Slave. You understand? You love it. Hey, do you want to go away? Well, we can, but only for three hours because I got to go back and let the dog out. Slave. Driven by what, though? Your love. You love your children. You love your spouses. You love... And Paul comes and he goes, everything I'm about my whole life is oriented around the passion that I have for the grace of Jesus Christ, which he's about to, you know, utterly blow out and, and, and explode. He's essentially saying, I have a master and I have a purpose that I've, that's been given to me by my master. You find that in verse 2, right? He calls himself an apostle and, and he says he's, he's an apostle to share the good news. These are not new terms, by the way. Apostle is not like a religious word they made up. What should we call ourselves, the 12 of us? Ah, apostles. No, it's an old word, ap apostolos, which meant like you're being sent out ahead of time because you've got news. And, the, and this word we use, gospel, Again, it's not a religious word that these guys invented to talk about what Jesus did. Um, the word gospel in the Greek was always used. It's, it, the, the, the Greek is euangelion, which meant um, a battle was won. And so the emperor would send the apostolos out to give the euangelion, give the good news. Battle's over. Victory's won. We win. We're the victors. Because of what just happened over here on the battlefield, your life just changed. You're welcome. That's gospel. What did those people have to do with that? Nothing. They were recipients. And their life was changed, and everything about it changed. And so Paul frames this massive letter here. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the scriptures, you already know the second half of Romans 1 is utterly shocking, radically controversial, and very difficult to talk about in today's culture, which we're going to be touching on next week because it hits on sexual ethics. But, you know, before Paul gets into ethics, including sexual ethics, 
Before Paul gets into any of that stuff, he is framing it around radical life-changing news that is an absolute game-changer day-to-day for why you would, anybody would have a particular view. Because when something happens in the past that changes everything for you, it changes your view, it changes how you, you engage and you go through life. And so as Romans unfolds, you've got these striking challenges you know, to our ethics. You've got wise instruction to guide our flourishing. But until our minds are captivated, and I mean like putting the fork in somebody's face because you're shocked at what you just tasted, captivated. Until we are captivated by what God has done for us in Christ, we will have no desire to conform to the image of Christ. We will have no desire to lay down the sin that keeps us from growing into the imitation of Christ. We will have no power compelling us to obey and live in the imitation of Christ. When you look at verse 3, he says that this good news was planned ahead of time by the prophets. Uh, uh, you know, God planned it ahead of time. It was promised. The prophets declared it through the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures is referring to the Old Testament. Anytime the New Testament uses the word scriptures, it's not talking about the letter that's being written at the moment. It's talking about history. So Paul is saying for millennia, God has been working uh, at moving his saving grace towards us to absolutely change everything. This gospel, it's not something that we do. It's a declaration of something life-altering that has happened for us. And God's been planning that since Genesis. He's been planning it since man sinned. When God's response to our sin was, where are you? What did you do? Who told you I'm coming to save you? From the beginning. So Jesus Christ, you know, the message of this gospel, his perfect life, he claims to be God. And he claims to be able to forgive sin. And he makes these grand claims. And then he lives this perfect life. And he dies this atoning death. And on the third day, all history agrees the tomb was empty, which means all of those bold claims were true. So if on the third day, the tomb is empty, and Paul has come with the good news to say, hey, everything just changed for you because of Jesus Christ, you're welcome. Worship him, turn to him, love him, trust him, orient your life around him. It will literally change your life. When Paul says that, he's saying it, bringing the gravity and the weight of that this is something God's been working on for millennia. The Bible is this book of, you know, composed of 66 books spanning generations and cultures, but it's got one message. And the one message is revolving around this hero of Christ alone. So the gospel is that life-changing message. The Secondly, the gospel is this historical claim. When you look at verse 3, he talks about how this Jesus Christ, this historical Jesus that the history books uh, all agree walked the earth. He says he was a descendant of David, but then he also makes this, that's in verse 3, but then in verse 4 he says, but he also rose from the dead. <laughs> These radical picture of the two natures of this Jesus, fully human and fully God. An important distinction that we get, that God comes, he, he is well acquainted with our suffering because he came in human form as a human. But he was fully God. The, 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 all of his bold claims were verified because of the resurrection of the dead. And as the, as the famous C.S. Lewis wrote, because of what Jesus said, there's really no room to say he was a nice guy. Because the, his claims were so audacious, he was either the Lord or he was a lunatic. And so 
Paul gives us this historical claim. It answers the question for those of you who may be here saying, why is it even reasonable to believe this? You know, why should we believe the gospel? Around Easter time, we, you know, we spent so much time talking about why it's reasonable to believe in the historical resurrection. So I'm not going to get into it very deeply right now, but I'm going to suffice it to say I'm going to make a few broad statements on why this is a historical claim. See, Paul isn't Christianity is not just a spiritual claim. There's lots of spiritual claims, hundreds. Christian faith is not just a theological claim. There are hundreds of theological claims. We gather on Sunday morning with the confidence that we're not just one of hundreds of religions, but we gather with confidence, humble confidence, by the way, because there's nothing, we know, it's by grace we're here, We're not better than anybody, but with confidence that Jesus Christ is God, the only way to God. Confidence, because on the third day, that tomb was empty. And I'm going to tell you why you don't make that stuff up. Because if you're an ancient Greek or a Roman, you believe that the whole goal of your spiritualism is to escape the material, because it's bad, and become ethereal, because it's good. And what does the resurrection show you? He doesn't resurrect as a ghost, he resurrects as a human man. So if you were making up legends, that's not how you'd write it, because none of the Greeks and the Romans would believe it. And the Jews did not believe that God would ever condescend to be a man. So the Jews wouldn't believe it. So not only, so if you were concocting a legend, you don't write it this way, because no one would believe it. But the tomb was empty on that third day, all of history agrees, you can read broadly through history and find that the, nobody's saying the tomb wasn't empty. They're all coming up with reasons why it, was, why, why, why it was empty. And we know from the scriptures that the witnesses of this empty tomb were women. And that, I cannot, over, I cannot overemphasize how important that is. Because in the ancient world to which this audience was written, the resurrection account was written, the testimony of women was, was not accepted in court, the Babylonian Talmud said it's better that the words of the law be burnt than give to women. And what does God do? He reveals himself to women. Who are the first evangelists of the resurrection? Women. And the apostles all write it down and they go, yep, that's the story we're going with. It was definitely women. So for those of you wondering, is it reasonable to believe this? The answer is absolutely yes, it is. Because it doesn't fit the genre of ancient legends. So it's, the gospel is this life-changing message. The gospel is this historical claim. And then finally, the gospel has transforming power. In verse, in verse 4, it says that Jesus is called Lord. Right? Now, Jesus' name is a Jewish name. It's Yeshua. Right? It's a Hebrew name. Yeshua. It means God is salvation. So up until now, Paul is basically saying, I'm a messenger of the scandalous grace of God, the God who is our salvation, who saves us, because we can't save ourselves, and because of Christ's resurrection, that's a game changer, because that means if we trust in him and we worship him, we get a resurrection. He rose, we will rise, and Paul is saying all this, but he's speaking about Jesus in terms of Savior, and now all of a sudden he introduces Jesus as Lord. He's a king. He's a ruler. He's the one who... uh, who we orient our life around, he answers the question, what does, it, what does it look like to be saved by grace? 
To be saved by grace doesn't look like self-rule. To be saved by grace looks like living under the Lord's rule, which is why he started this whole thing by calling himself a slave. He's like, he's like I love Jesus. Yes, I'll orient my life around him. Yes, I will bend my knee to him. Not only did he save me as my savior, he's my king. He rose from the grave. He defeated death. If you have better news than the finality of your death, I'd love to hear it because that's the news I have. This short little life with all of its fragility and challenges and problems is not all that there is. And this is what Paul is heralding. And so he's saying, of course, I would live to the glory of my Savior and live to his rule. In verse 5, he says that through, through Jesus, we've received grace and apostleship. See these two words, right? He's received the job, but he's received grace for the job. He doesn't just say, I've received apostleship, so I'm rolling my sleeves up and I'm trying my hardest. No, grace and apostleship. You and I, we're children of God. As Christians who go into this city to, with freedom, love our neighbors, and to bring the gospel to bear and to be a blessing to the city, that's not just roll up your sleeves and go do it, because after all, Jesus saved you, so you should pay him back with good works. No, you've received grace in the same way that the apostle received grace. The, this life-transforming power. So what does it look like? He says, that this, he says that this empowers him to walk in his calling, and he's supposed to call the church to obedience that comes from faith. What does obedience that comes from faith look like? That's what the rest of the letter of Romans unpacks, right? And you notice that he's saying that the obedience is from faith. The obedience that you and I desire to live before God is from salvation, not for salvation from the goodness of God's grace. It's not for. And so Paul's language is so important as he begins to unpack the letter so we can understand what, what he's going to call us into, even in the second half of, of this chapter. It's because of what God, what, what God has done uh, that true faith will bring this obedience. And I say true faith brings obedience because your faith is not in a random set of ethics. Your faith is in a person. Your faith is in a divine king. And so if your faith is in a divine king, then you will live to the glory of that king. You and I will more and more, though, of course, we, we struggle. And so we're going to have different ways of relating to obedience. And some of you, you know, have stories of how you relate to this relationship between grace and obedience. See, if you're a, if you're a, a, you know, a self-righteous person, you're going to think that God accepts you on the basis of your ongoing obedience. And your whole emphasis is going to be like, I got a, my whole, the driver for my ongoing obedience is God's acceptance. And that totally denies the sufficiency of Christ. That's what the self-righteous will do. But if you're a rebellious person, then you're like, well, I actually have no interest in obedience. In fact, I love it when Paul starts talking, preaching about grace, because then my ears perk up. And then when he gets to the part of the text that starts to sound a little bit like, here's how you should live now, I kind of just shut out, shut off and check Facebook. If you're a, a, a rebellious person, then the rebellious person lives like their king. Right? Jesus is not king, I'm king. And that totally denies the lordship of Jesus. But if we're repentant, then we will be actually amazed and empowered by grace. We're going to desire obedience, despite our ongoing struggles with our sin. We're going to desire to imitate Jesus. Right? In the Reformation, Martin Luther famously said it this way, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves never stays alone. When you look at verse 8, 
you find that Paul says, you know, your faith is being reported all over the world. Here he is in Corinth. He's hearing about them. Like I said, you know, uh, earlier at the, at the beginning, how is he finding this out? He's not following hashtag Rome life. What's going on? Uh, what's being reported? What's he hearing about? Oh man, I've heard about that church. It's huge. It's humongous. There's thousands and thousands of people. <laughs> yeah, that's not what he's hearing. That's how, we, that's how we gauge amazing things in modern North America. Whoa, we've got to check this place out. There's tons of people there. There's thousands of people at that church, as if somehow size equates Christ-centeredness and orthodoxy. I don't know how we got there, but as North Americans, we kind of are. Paul didn't hear about anything like that. It wasn't like, oh, I've got to go. I hear this church is massive. No, it's a handful of small little house churches that he heard about. Um, you know, what did he hear about? Oh, they have everything. Just go to that church and they have everything. Are you out, an outdoorsy person with a quirky personality who was born on a day that ended in Y? Well, we have a small group for you. Oh, man, you've got to go to that church. they got everything for it. That's not, he didn't hear about that. Oh, we've got to go to this church in Rome. Have you heard about their children's ministry? What? They've got a water slide. Wow, man, there's a petting zoo. There's a petting zoo in Rome. You gotta go there. Your kids are gonna love it. There's all these little lion cubs. We don't know why there's so many lions in Rome, but apparently lions and Christians, I don't know. Well, go pet the lion cubs. No. He's, he didn't hear about any of any, he, he didn't even hear about the preacher. Well, you gotta go to Rome. That preacher's incredible. What's the preacher's name in Rome? Anybody know? Yeah, no, you don't know, because we don't know. You wanna know why? Because his name's not relevant. My name's not relevant. The name that's relevant is the name that I'm... So we don't even get the preacher's name. Who founded Rome? Go ahead, study it. I dare you. I did for hours, and I was like, I kind of vaguely knew the answer before it began, but you know what the answer was at the end? We don't know. There's a handful of really great historical theories about how that church got there, and, and you know, uniformly, most scholarship agrees that as the Holy Spirit was poured out in Pentecost, that you've got Rome represented there, and some Christians went back. We know there were five synagogues in Rome, so you had some Jews who believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, so you've got Messianic Jews and Greeks and Romans. Well, that's a weird mix, but they start a couple of little churches. And what Paul hears about is the outworking of their faith. What he hears about is when their minds are blown by the grace of God, it works its way from their head and their hearts out through their hands, and they're loving and caring for each other at a time and a place where it is not very easy to be a Christian. It's like 57 AD, and there was this dude named Nero you might have heard of. So things were not great. But he hears about this, these little churches just loving each other and caring for each other and gathering together and celebrate Jesus, taking care of needs. Oh man, this, this, this is going wrong. That's catching on fire or maybe literally catching on fire in ancient Rome. Okay, we're going we're gonna to care for each other. And what was it that com compelled all of this stuff from the church? That's what Paul is absolutely amazed by. He's absolutely amazed by it. It was not an easy time to be a Christian in uh, any, any more than it is today. Worse, in 57 AD. Nero was so crazy, even the Romes were like, hashtag not my emperor. Like that guy, when you read about the things that he was doing, there was a, a lot of people that were like, yeah, we're not actually good with this. It was not an easy time for the church. Paul hears about it all the way in Corinth, and he's like, I gotta go visit these people. And, when, and, and he's, he's absolutely amazed. And when you look at verse 11 and 12, 
it's not even simply that he wants to impart his teaching gifts, which he does. It's not simply that he wants to give this letter of really comprehensive doctrine to the church, which he does, right? He gives it to Phoebe, his ministry colleague. She delivers it, right? So that, that's all true. It, it's not just that he wants to encourage them. He wants to go, look at verse 11 and 12. He wants to be encouraged by them. He's like, I got to go so that I can be encouraged by you because what I'm hearing is blowing my mind. He's so encouraged at the work of grace in this little church. It's like when I was watching, a, I was watching, wants, the image that came to my mind was I was watching this Jays game and one of the young guys hit a home run and one of the other guys went over. Guriel hits this home run and, and, and Vladdy goes over and, and starts rubbing his, his hair and then going like this and rubbing his hair and going like this. He's like, I got to get some of that home run power on me. That's what was like going on in the dugout. And that's kind of like how Paul's feeling. He's hearing about this church. He's like, wow, I just got to go get around these people. I'm, I'm so encouraged. And you know, church, I'm encouraged by many of you here. And as I was preparing this text and thinking it through and, and, um, and, and reading, I think about how often you reach out to one another and you deliver meals to one another or you hear about needs. Some of you come up to me on occasion when you hear about needs and some of you say, let me know if the church raised enough money. If they don't raise enough money, I'm writing a check. Some of you could do that. Some of you show up here when nobody else is here and you're running around and you're caring things so people can hear the gospel. Some of you are on Tuesday nights, the music team, you're practicing. The rest of us are doing other stuff on Tuesday nights. You are taking time out of your schedules so you can serve us and proclaim the gospel. I'm so encouraged. I could go on and on all morning about the, how I'm encouraged here. And it's what, the, it's what the grace of, that's not what the gospel is, but that's what the gospel does. And Paul is so encouraged by it. And so when you look at verses 14 and 15, he says something really interesting. He says, I'm obligated to come. Interesting language, isn't it? He says, I'm in, in the Greek, I'm in debt. I'm in debt. I have to, I gotta come. I'm compelled to come. It's interesting language because again, at the center of Christianity is grace. So why in, a, why in a context of celebration of grace is he using language like, I'm obligated, I'm in debt? He's in debt like Jesus has his arms crossed, like if you don't go, it's all over. Is that what he means? No, there's two ways to be in debt. If you give me $10, I'm in debt to you, $10. But if you give me $10 and you say after the church service today, walk down King Street and find the first needy person you see and give them $10 so they can buy some food, I'm in debt $10. Not to you, though. To them. I can't keep that $10. You gave it to me to give it to them. And so the Apostle Paul is like, I'm, I gotta come. I have been given this, this radically life-changing good news, and I've got this compulsion to share it. And so he, and so he, he kind of explains it um, that way. But Again, what word does he use to describe his obligation? Not guilt. Well, Jesus. And he's like, oh, no. Now I know the gospel. Now I'm obligated to share it. Oh, I wish I didn't know because now I feel responsible. Oh, the guilt. No. Look at the word he uses. Eager. You see, that's why, I, that's why the gospel has transforming power. It's not just a life-changing message that doesn't do anything in you. It's a life-changing message that actually changes you. That's why Paul's like, I'm eager. There's been that inward change. The work of God's grace in your life and in mine. He's eager to do it. We're not saved in grace and then commissioned in guilt. 
We're saved in grace. We're empowered by grace. We're changed by grace. We don't have Paul's gifts and we don't have Paul's calling. But like those small little churches in Rome, we can be eager. You can be eager, church, to use whatever gift you happen to have in love and serveness to those who are sitting in this room next to you, across from you, behind you, in front of you. Use your gifts to love and serve those who are inside this church and humbly share the gospel outside this church. This is what you and I have not only been called to, but empowered for. This is not just a message that's good news for you. This is a message that is good news for you and is actually the very power that changes you and transforms you. When you look at verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God that brings salvation. And that word ashamed, it could also be translated offended. He's saying, I'm not offended at the gospel. And you can be offended at the gospel. The gospel is quite offensive, right? The gospel offends the self-righteous because self-righteous religious people, right, it confronts the perception of their own goodness. And if salvation is only by grace alone, then the reality of your sinfulness, that's offensive, right, to the idea that, oh, no, actually, deep down, we're all really good people. So it's offensive in that sense. But the gospel also, it doesn't just offend the religious, it also offends the irreligious in the sense that if salvation is through Jesus Christ alone and not any other way, then that offends the love affair we have with our autonomy. Well, how dare you say Jesus Christ is on the the way? That's so narrow. There's hundreds of religions in the world. How dare you? Well, I'm, I'm making a historical claim. I'm saying... The whole world agrees that on the third day the tomb was empty, and I've read the reports, and I believe them. So what I'm saying is, I know there's hundreds of theories and ideas about God, but there's only one guy who said he was God, and then three days later the tomb was empty, and 500 people saw him, so I'm going with he's God. And I understand that that's offensive, but you see, what is it offending? It's offending our autonomy. It's offending our idea that, well, I should be able to choose for myself. Well, who's God in that equation? Well, I think that whatever you think is good for you and whatever is good for me, well, who's God in that equation? Who, uh, what, on what divine standard is that being claimed? It's being claimed on the basis of our autonomy. So the gospel, it, before it liberates us, it confronts us and it offends us. But it is good news, tremendously good news, you know, Look at this line behind me on the wall. I hate to do this to you, but I just drew your attention to it. There's a line on the wall, and the line is not straight. I don't know who taped that. Perhaps a, a monkey who got its first job. I don't know. who, ta- But it's not straight. Now, when we start having conversations about what God accepts and well, how who gets to say in Jesus, the reason, why we're so, well, the reason why we're on the Christ alone bus is because no matter how good you think you are of a person, there's a divine standard and if I went to your house and paint, taped the line and painted it and walked out and said it's good enough, you'd say, um, I'm sorry, no it isn't. That does not meet the standard. There is a divine standard that is perfect. And no matter who we are, starting with this preacher, none of us get to say, I think I'm a good enough person that God should accept me. Because guess what our version of goodness is in a divine standard? It's pretty much like that line. We've actually got some fantastic imagery of the gospel here. A crooked line that speaks to our inability to be perfect. We've got a dead scoreboard that reminds us that by God's grace, there's no more scorekeeping because praise Jesus, he did everything perfectly for us. We've got a cross in the middle, the center of our faith. We've got some pretty good imagery in here. And so he calls this gospel the power of God. Because it's not just the power that rescues us, it's the power that renews us. 
How does it do that? I'm going to close with this. There's a Syrian bishop in the 5th century. He called the gospel, it's like a hot pepper. He, he, his name was Theodoret, and he used to say, the gospel is like a hot pepper. On the outside, it's cold, and, and it's cold to the touch, and it, and it seems cold. But once you really bite into it, there's fiery hotness. And what Paul is saying by the gospel being power is it's not just an ideology. It's not just something that I'm talking to you about Sunday in and Sunday out. If it were only an ideology, it's cold. But when you receive the gospel, when you receive God's grace, when you bite into it, when you reflect on it, when you reflect on what it means to have your sins gone, when you reflect on what it means to know that this life is not all that there is, it changes everything. It empowers you in a radical way, right? Your heart and your mind is lifted by the gospel, healed by the gospel, revived by the gospel, changed by the gospel. The way that you relate to suffering is never the same because of the gospel. There is perfect strength available for you in your weakness because of the gospel. The anxiety that comes from trials and challenges and when your body breaks down, the restlessness of this world, all of that is quieted when you reflect on the gospel. It's power. The fear and the worry that rise from the uncertainties about your life, your future, they're drowned out by the gospel, silenced by the gospel. You know, we're saved by the futility of relating to this short, fragile life like many gods, and we engage each day with the life-changing conviction that there's an eternal life, and we are children of God, the power of the gospel. He says that the righteous will live by faith. When you live by something, that means you're all about it. You mean, it means you, you're defined by it. You orient your life around it. You look for joy in it. You find fulfillment in it. And so like the Apostle Paul, here you and I go, church. We leave this place this morning. We, we go from here in the power of the gospel. We face the trials and the tragedies of our lives on Monday in the power of the gospel, with hearts and minds being reshaped by the gospel. We leave this place this morning compelled by the goodness of the gospel because we bit into the pepper. It's hot and it's fiery and it's really having an impact in our lives. And we go out from here, not from a sense of guilt, not feeling like we have to, but with this tremendous eagerness because we love to. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Do you believe this? Let's pray.